When we evaluate a prophet, we have to ask ourselves, where are these revelations coming from? Are they coming from his own mind? Are they coming from something demonic? Or are they coming from the one true God? In this lecture, we're going to examine two arguments which point to a non-divine source of Muhammad's revelations. The arguments are the argument from demonic influence and the argument from revelatory convenience. I'll explain what these are as we go along. Let's begin with the former. As we saw in a previous lecture, Muhammad claimed that Jewish and Christian scriptures predicted his coming. This has led Muslim apologists to comb the Old and the New Testaments in search of passages that refer to their prophet. While all biblical evidence um, offered by Muslims in support of Muhammad appears horribly strained to non-Muslims uh, and has been thoroughly refuted time and again, it's still common to hear Muslims claim that the Bible speaks about Muhammad. The most popular prophecy about Muhammad is found in Deuteronomy 18. It's quite ironic, then, to learn that according to Deuteronomy 18, Muhammad can't possibly be a prophet. As we'll see, this puts Muslims in an awkward position and helps show the links they're willing to go to in order to defend their prophet. In this lecture, I'm going to prove, based on Muslim claims, that Muhammad was a false prophet. I'll begin by offering two versions of the argument from demonic influence, and I will follow this uh, by carefully defending both versions. Once I've shown that the arguments are sound, I'll briefly discuss the options available to Muslims who want to reject the obvious conclusion. So here's the first argument. Premise one. If a person speaks in the name of false gods, that person is a false prophet. Premise two. Muhammad spoke in the names of false gods. Conclusion, therefore, Muhammad was a false prophet. That's one argument. It's, the logic there is valid, so the only question is whether the premises are both, both true. Second argument, premise one. If a person delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, that person is a false prophet. Premise two. Muhammad delivered a revelation that didn't come from God. Conclusion, therefore, Muhammad was a false prophet. Now, how can we defend my claims that a person who speaks in the name of false gods is a false prophet, and that if a person delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, that person is a false prophet? Uh, there are at least three reasons to accept these claims, and Muslims simply cannot reject all three reasons. First, I think it seems clear that if a person speaks in the names of false gods and delivers revelations that don't come from God, the person can't be a true prophet. The only way to deny this would be to say, yes, prophets sometimes do speak in the name of false gods, and sometimes they do deliver revelations that just don't come from God. Uh, I, for one, am not willing to grant that. Second, Deuteronomy 18 serves as the foundation of Islam's argument from biblical prophecy. It's been used by generations of Muslims to prove that Muhammad was a true prophet. Now, since Muslims appeal regularly to Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 19, as some kind of miraculous prophecy, they must believe that it was inspired by God. But surely, if verses 18 and 19 are the inspired word of God according to Muslims, we can't ignore the next verse where God says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Here we have two criteria for spotting a false prophet. One, delivering a revelation that, uh, which God has not commanded him to speak. And two, speaking in the name of other gods. Since Muslims who appeal to the so-called uh, biblical prophecies of Muhammad have, been, uh, have given this passage their stamp of approval, there's no reasonable way for them to deny my claims that if a person speaks in the name of other gods, he must be a false prophet, and that if a person delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, he must be a false prophet. Third, even Muslims who don't appeal to Deuteronomy 18 as an inspired prophecy, even they have to admit 
that it's the word of God. Why? Because in Sunan Abu Dawud, number 4434, the Jews bring Muhammad a copy of the Torah. Muhammad, as we've seen, put his hand on this book, the Torah, and swore that it's the word of God. And we find the same thing over and over again in the Quran. So unless Muslims are willing to say that Muhammad swore on a false and corrupt book, they have to admit that Deuteronomy 18 is the word of God. And according to the criteria in Deuteronomy 18, if a person speaks in the name of false gods, that person is a false prophet. And if the person delivers a revelation that doesn't come from God, that person is a false prophet. So Muslims can't deny that we have a solid method here of spotting false prophets. Delivering false revelation and promoting polytheism prove that a person is a false prophet. Interestingly, according to numerous Muslim sources, Muhammad did both of these things when he delivered the Satanic verses. Let's turn then to the Satanic verses with the understanding that if this story turns out to be true and Muhammad did promote polytheism and did deliver a revelation that didn't come from God, we have a clear proof that he has to be a false prophet. According to our earliest Muslim sources, when Muhammad was preaching in Mecca, he didn't win very many converts. But since he wouldn't stop condemning the religious beliefs of the people of Mecca, they began persecuting his followers. And as the suffering of the Muslims increased, Muhammad longed for a revelation from God that would make the Meccans happy and bring the persecution to an end. Then one day, Muhammad got the revelation that he was looking for. It said, Have you not heard of Alat and Alusa and Manat, the third, the other? These are the exalted cranes whose intercession is to be hoped for. These words were originally part of Surah 53. They declared that in addition to Allah, there are three goddesses that Muslims can, Muslims can pray to, Alat, Alusa, and Manat. Muhammad delivered these re revelations to his followers. He bowed down in honor of them, and his followers bowed down with him. The pagans were so overjoyed that Muhammad had approved of their gods, they bowed down too. And suddenly there was peace between the Muslims and the pagans. But a little later, Muhammad came back and said that these verses, which he had delivered as part of the Quran, weren't really from God. They were from Satan. Amazingly, the earliest Muslim historians recorded this incident. It's a monument to the honesty of certain early Muslim historians. They admitted something totally embarrassing about their prophet. Muslims ever since have been trying to take it back, but it's too late to take it back. I'm sorry. Now let's examine the evidence. There are two primary ways we can investigate the authenticity of the satanic verses. First, we can apply the method that historians use to investigate claims, the historical method. Second, we can apply the, uh, the method that Muslims use when they investigate Islamic history. It's not criticism. We'll apply both methods and see where the evidence points. Let's begin with the historical method. How would a historian approach the satanic verses? The first question a historian is going to ask is, what do our earliest biographical sources say? Generally, earlier reports are more reliable than later reports because later reports are more likely to be embellished or influenced by people's biases. So early testimony is extremely important, and we have to ask what the early Muslim historians said. Here we find that our earliest biographical records, such as Ibn Ishaq and Waqidi, do contain the Satanic verses. We also know that even earlier sources contained reports of the Satanic verses. So this isn't something that was invented by something that was invented late in Islamic history. This is something that goes back to the first century of Islam. The next question a historian is going to ask is, how many sources are there? Is the story found in just one source, or do we find it in multiple historical reports? The idea here is that if we only have one source telling us that an event occurred, it's possible that someone made it up. But if we have multiple historical reports all saying the same thing, it seems unlikely that someone simply invented it. So, when we investigate the satanic verses... 
how many historical reports are we dealing with? Are we dealing with just one or two? Maybe five? Ten? Fifteen? Anyone think twenty? Twenty-five? Maybe thirty? Thirty-five? There are around 37 historical reports of the Satanic verses, all written by Muslims. Not one, not ten, 37 that I know of, based on the careful research of Harvard scholar Shahab Ahmed. So not only do we find the verses, the Satanic verses, in our earliest biographical records, we also find that we have an absolutely astounding number of reports. At this point, the historian is going to ask whether these sources are independent. That is, are a bunch of sources just copying from one source? If that's the case, then even though you have a bunch of sources, it really just counts as one source, the original source that everyone else is copying from. So how many independent sources do we have? Here are the isnads, the chains of transmission, come in handy because Muslims often kept records of where they got their stories. Of the 37 sources we have for this story, six go back to Kab al-Qurazi, one of Islam's greatest early Quranic scholars. Five go back to Urwa ibn al-Zubair, an early Meccan scholar who's known as the founder of the study of the life of Muhammad. He was also Aisha's nephew, Abu Bakr's grandson, and the son of Abu Bakr's daughter Asma, one of the first 20 converts to Islam. Two go back to Abu Bakr ibn Abd al-Rahman ibn al-Harith, one of, the first, uh, one of the top scholars of Islamic law during the first century. Five go back to Abu al-Aliya al-Basri, another of the greatest Quranic scholars of the first century. He studied the Quran with Umar, Ubay ibn Kab, Zayd ibn Thabit, and ibn Abbas. If you're familiar with Islam, uh, you'll recognize those names as the second Muslim caliph, one of Muhammad's top reciters of the Quran, the man who compiled the Quran, and the founder of Islamic studies. Two go back to al-Sudi, another early scholar who studied with Ibn Abbas. One comes from the tafsir of Muhammad ibn al-Sayyib al-Kabi, an early commentator who composed the longest tafsir that had been written up until his time. Four reports go back to Qatada ibn Diyama, one of Islam's greatest early commentators. One goes back to al-Zahak ibn Muzahim al-Balki, a first century expert in tafsir. One goes back to Ikrimah, a slave of Ibn Abbas and an expert on the life of Muhammad. We have six reports that go back to Ibn Abbas himself, the founder of Quranic studies. And we have several that go back to Sa'id Ibn Jubair, one of the leading Quranic scholars of his time and one of the top students of Ibn Abbas. Some of Ibn Abbas's narratives go through Sa'id Ibn Jubair. It's clear then that we have numerous independent sources for the Satanic Verses. Now, we've just looked at the three main criteria a historian would use in evaluating the Satanic Verses. We have early sources going back to the first century of Islam. We have multiple sources somewhere in the neighborhood of 37. And we have independent sources, including a number of Islam's best first century historians and commentators. But we can go even further. Historians also apply, apply principles such as the principle of embarrassment. The principle of embarrassment states that, as a general rule, dedicated followers of a religious leader don't invent embarrassing stories about, the leader, um, about their leader. If they're going to invent a story, it's going to be something positive. Stories about their leader performing miracles, for instance. What this means is that there's no way a bunch of Muslims decided one day to invent a story about Muhammad delivering revelations from Satan. And if non-Muslims had invented the story, Muslims certainly wouldn't have passed it on as if this was historical fact. Uh, what they would have done is exposed the fabrication that was being invented by non-Muslims. So the only plausible explanation for the data we have is that the accounts are true. We can see then why non-Muslim scholars almost universally regard this event as indisputable. The great Oxford scholar Guillaume, for instance, says this, it is impossible to suggest a motive that would induce the early Muslims to write such a story about their prophet unless it were true. If historical evidence is to be given any value, we must hold that Muhammad pronounced these words in the middle of Surah 53. 
And Montgomery Watt concludes, Muhammad must have publicly recited the satanic verses as part of the Quran. It is unthinkable that the story could have been invented by Muslims or foisted upon them by non-Muslims. Now, at this point, Muslims usually say, history mystery. We looked at the Isnads, and we don't like them, which means that we're going to reject the story regardless of how much historical evidence there is for it. If you're not familiar with the Muslim method of historical investigation, Muslims have stories about Muhammad, and those stories come with a list of names. I got this story from so-and-so, who got it 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 from so-and-so, all the way back to a companion of Muhammad. And so a Muslim scholar looks at this list of names, and if he likes everyone on the list and doesn't have any major objections to the story, he concludes that the story is true. If the Muslim scholar doesn't like the names on the list, he rejects the story. And this is a standard Muslim excuse for rejecting all kinds of historical facts about Muhammad. But it's based on a complete misunderstanding of the proper application of Isnad criticism. In the early centuries of Islam, there were two broad categories of historical literature. On the one hand, there was the Hadith literature, and on the other hand, there was the Sir Maghazi literature. The Hadith literature consisted of sayings and deeds that define Muslim doctrine and practice. The Sir Maghazi literature consisted of straightforward historical narratives. The emphasis wasn't on doctrine or practice. The emphasis was on providing a biography of Muhammad. So we have two different kinds of historical reports, and here's the key. These two kinds of literature had different methodologies. The Hadith scholars insisted on having complete isnads, complete chains of transmission. I got it from so-and-so all the way back to a companion of Muhammad. They insisted on having a complete chain. The Sira Maghazi scholars often gave a, uh, an abbreviated isnad, or sometimes they would simply appeal to a first-century scholar or anyone who was recognized as an authority. Sometimes they wouldn't have an isnad at all. So we have these two different methodologies. Now, here's where the error of Muslims comes in. The main reports of the Satanic verses are part of the Sira Maghazi literature, which means that the reports should be judged based on the standards and methodology of the Sira Maghazi scholars. But Muslim apologists reject the, report, reject the reports based on a, uh, by applying the methodology of the Hadith scholars. Again, these are two different categories of historical reports. And so Muslims who reject the Satanic verses based on Hadith methodology are simply confused about the role of Isnads in the Sira Maghazi literature. When we examine the Satanic Verses reports based on the standards of the Sira Maghazi scholars, we find that the reports are completely reliable. Indeed, reports of the Satanic Verses were accepted by the greatest of the Sira scholars, Ibn Abi Hatim, Ibn al-Mundir, Ibn Mardawya, Musa Ibn Uqba, Abu Mashar, Ibn Ishaq, and Al-Tabri. So if we judge these reports based on the kind of Islamic literature they're actually contained in, the reports turn out to be just as solid as pretty much anything in the Sira literature. But just for fun, we can even apply the standards of the Hadith scholars to the Satanic verses, and we'll find that the reports are still reliable. For instance, we have sound chains of transmission going from Ahmad ibn Musa all the way back to ibn Abbas. We have another sound chain that goes from Yusuf ibn Hamad back to ibn Abbas. So we have reliable chains of transmission that go all the way back to a companion of Muhammad, and this is the main criterion of the Hadith scholars. But there are other sources we need to consider as well. We have a number of Sahih Mursal reports. Sahih meaning we can trust everyone in the chain, and Mursal meaning that it doesn't go all the way back to a companion of Muhammad. Here we have to ask, who do these Sahih Mursal reports go back to? Do they go back to people who were in a good position to know what happened? 
Well, we have two Sahih Morsel chains that go back to Saeed ibn Jubair, who again was one of the top students of ibn Abbas. We have two Sahih Morsel chains that go to, back to Abu Bakr, uh, ibn al-Rahman, al ibn al-Harith, one of Islam's greatest first century scholars. We have four Sahih Morsel chains that go back to Abu al-Aliya al-Basri, who again studied with Caliph Umar, Ubay ibn Kab, Zayd ibn Thabit, and ibn Abbas. Since the chains of transmission are reliable according to the standards of the Hadith scholars, we know that these guys were teaching that Muhammad delivered the Satanic verses. Here Muslims will say, well, the companion isn't listed in these Isnads, therefore the story is false. But let's examine this response more closely. Three of Islam's earliest scholars who knew the companions were teaching independently that Muhammad delivered the Satanic verses. Were they lying? If Muslims say yes, they're telling us that the earliest Muslim scholars cannot be trusted. If that's the case, I ask you, how can we know anything about the life of Muhammad? So if Muslims are going to tell us that their greatest scholars were a bunch of liars, and these were the people who passed on information from the companions, how can we trust any Muslim sources? But there's an even bigger problem for people who reject the satanic verses. You see, Muslim scholars have a method of examining Sahih Mursal reports. According to Ibn Taymiyyah, if we have multiple Sahih Mursal reports of an event, we have to accept the, uh, the event as authentic because there's no way that several different Muslims would have invented the same false story. So according to Ibn Taymiyyah, we have to accept the Satanic Verses, and Ibn Taymiyyah himself believed that the Satanic Verses reports were authentic. We can see then that even if we apply the strict standards of the Hadith scholars, we still have to accept the authenticity of the Satanic Verses. There's simply no reasonable way to reject these accounts. So why do Muslims reject these reports? Quite simply, Muslims reject the satanic verses narratives because they don't think that Muhammad could have ever compromised with paganism. And they don't think that Muhammad could have possibly been susceptible to demonic influence. But I would argue the exact opposite. I would say that this story fits in perfectly with what we know about Muhammad. According to the story, Muhammad was the victim of satanic influence. We have data on Muhammad's spiritual problems going all the way back to his childhood. Muhammad's parents died, so he was brought up by his grandfather and uncle. He had a nurse who took care of him prior to his mother's death. This following account from Muhammad's nurse in Ibn Asak narrates a strange event that occurred during Muhammad's childhood. Some months after our return, Muhammad and his brother were with our lambs behind the tents when his brother came running and said to us, Two men clothed in white have seized that Qureshi brother of mine and thrown him down and opened up his belly and are stirring it up. We ran towards him and found him standing up with a livid face. We took hold of him and asked him what was the matter. He said, Two men in white raiment came and threw me down and opened up my belly and searched therein for I know not what. So we took him back to our tent. His father said to me, I am afraid that this child has had a stroke, so take him back to his family before the result appears. So he picked him up and took him to his mother, who asked why we had brought him when I had been anxious for his welfare and desirous of keeping him with me. I said to her, God has let my son live so far, and I have done my duty. I am afraid that ill will befall him, so I have brought him back to you as you wished. She asked me what happened and gave me no peace until I told her. When she asked if I feared a demon possessed him, I replied that I did. Now, Muhammad's nurse wasn't the only one to fear demonic possession on the part of Muhammad. The Prophet of Islam himself came to the exact same conclusion when he began receiving revelations. A full account of Muhammad's first encounter with Gabriel is given in our earliest biography, the Sirat Rasulullah. When it was the night on which God honored him with his mission and showed mercy on his servants thereby, Gabriel brought him the command of Allah. He came to me, said the Apostle of God, while I was asleep with a coverlet of brocade whereon was some writing and said, Read. 
I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it so tightly that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it again so that I thought it was death. Then he let me go and said, read. I said, what shall I read? He pressed me with it the third time so that I thought it was death and said, read. I said, what then shall I read? And this I said only to deliver myself from him, lest he should do the same thing again. He said, read in the name of thy Lord who created who created men, uh, man of blood coagulated. Read, thy Lord is the most beneficent, who taught by the pen, taught that which they knew not unto men. So I read it, and he departed from me, and I awoke from my sleep, and it was as though these words were written on my heart. So far so good, except for possibly the violent manner in which Gabriel brought the message to Muhammad. But Muhammad's interpretation of the event is quite revealing. His first impression of his encounter was that he had been possessed. As a result, Muhammad quickly became suicidal. He said, Now none of God's creatures was more hateful to me than an ecstatic poet or a man possessed. I cannot even look at them. I thought, Woe is me, poet or possessed. Never shall Quraysh say this of me. I will go to the top of the mountain and throw myself down that I may kill myself and gain rest. Muhammad tried to throw himself off a cliff, but he was stopped by who he thought was Gabriel. He later became suicidal again when no additional revelations came. Yet he was sometimes even more terrified when Gabriel did speak to him, and his revelations seem to have been very stressful situations. Let's look at some passages from the Hadith. Sahih al-Bukhari, 3238, Muhammad said, The divine inspiration was delayed for a short period, but suddenly, as I was walking, I heard a voice in the sky, and when I looked up towards the sky, to my surprise, I saw the angel who had come to me in the Hira cave, and he was sitting on a chair in between the sky and earth. I was so frightened by him that I fell on the ground and came to my family and said to them, Cover me with a blanket. Cover me. Sahih al-Bukhari, 3829. When the Kaaba was rebuilt, the prophet and Abbas went to carry stones. Abbas said to the prophet, Take off and put your waist sheet over your neck so that the stones may not hurt you. But as soon as he took off his waist sheet, he fell unconscious to the ground with both his eyes towards the sky. When he came to his senses, he said, My waist sheet, my waist sheet. Then he tied his waist sheet round his waist. Sahih Muslim, 5763. Allah's apostle sweated in cold weather when revelation descended upon him. Sahih Muslim 5764, Aisha reported, When revelation descended upon Allah's messenger, even during the cold days, his forehead perspired. Sahih Muslim 5765, Aisha reported that Harith Allah's, asked Allah's apostle, How does the inspiration come to you? Muhammad said, At times it comes to me like the ringing of a bell, and that is most severe for me. And when it is over, I retain that. And at times an angel in the form of a human being comes to me and, speak, and, I, and speaks, and I retain whatever he says. Sahih Muslim 57.66 When the Wahi inspiration descended upon Allah's messenger, he felt a burden on that account, and the color of his face underwent a change. We also know that Muhammad was susceptible to spiritual attack. According to Muslim sources, a Jewish magician named Labid was, oh, was able to exercise control over Muhammad. Sahih al-Bukhari, number 3175. Aisha narrated, Once the prophet was bewitched, so that he began to imagine that he had done a thing which, in fact, he had not done. Sahih al-Bukhari, 5765. Aisha narrated, Magic was worked on Allah's apostle, so that he used to think that he had had sexual relations with his wives, while actually he had not. Then one day he said, O oh Aisha, do you know that Allah has instructed me concerning the matter I asked about him? Two men came to me, and one of them sat near my head, and the other sat near my feet. The one near my head asked the other, What is wrong with this man? The latter replied, He is under the effect of magic. The first one asked, Who has worked magic on him? The other replied, Labid, a man from Bani Zurek, who was an ally of the Jews and was a hypocrite.
The first one asked, what material did he use? The other replied, a comb, and the hair stuck to it. Ibn Asak also reports that Labid bewitched the apostle of Allah so that he could not come at his wives. The translator, Guillaume, adds a note saying that according to this tradition, the spell lasted for a year. Now think about this. According to Muslim sources and according to their most reliable sources, God's greatest prophet was a victim of black magic for about a year. Someone who wanted to have a negative spiritual influence on Muhammad simply needed to get his hairbrush, take his hair, and use it to cast a spell. Given all of this information, we can say, uh, can we say, that Muhammad couldn't have delivered the satanic verses or that he couldn't have been influenced by Satan because he was somehow immune from spiritual attack. I don't see how we can. But there's something else we need to consider. According to the satanic verses accounts, Muhammad compromised with the pagans by praising their gods. What else do we know about Muhammad and the pagans? Do we know that Muhammad simply wouldn't compromise with them at all? Well, the pagans performed ablutions. They fasted during the month of Ramadan. They prayed facing Mecca. They took the pilgrimage to Mecca and circled the Kaaba. They kissed the black stone. These were all pagan practices that were very dear to the polytheistic, idol-worshipping Arabs. And now they're part of Islam. This compromise with paganism fits in perfectly with Muhammad praising the pagan deities. Also, according to the story, Muhammad wanted to receive a revelation that would help him with the pagans because he wanted the persecution to end. So Muhammad had a particular desire. He wanted the persecution on the Muslims to come to an end. And according to the story, Muhammad's desire resulted in him being susceptible to the influence of Satan. Is this inconsistent with what we know about Muhammad? No, this is exactly what we find in the rest of the Muslim sources. Muhammad told the Muslims that they could have four wives. He wanted more, and so he got a revelation, Surah 3350, which said that he can have more. Muhammad lusted after Zainab, his son Zaid's wife. Then he got a revelation saying that it was okay to marry her. Over and over again in the Muslim sources, we find Muhammad having some sort of desire and then getting a revelation that satisfies his desire. So is it surprising that in this situation where Muhammad has a particular desire, namely for the persecution to end, is it surprising that that desire would be satisfied? Of course not. That's what always happens with Muhammad. So everything that goes into these narratives fits perfectly with everything else we know about Muhammad. Now, at this point in The argument Muslims usually get desperate and try to deflect criticism of Muhammad by attacking the Bible. Um, Anytime I've been in a discussion on this topic, Muslims at this point will say something along the lines of, let's say, uh, Jesus followed Satan up on the mountain. Uh, Therefore, Jesus was susceptible to satanic influence too. How dare you criticize Muhammad? Aren't you being inconsistent? Now, uh, Let's be clear here. Jesus faced Satan on a mountain and won a complete victory over him. Satan ended up fleeing. So are these two stories parallel? On the one hand, Jesus faces Satan and wins a complete victory over him. Satan had no power over him. And on the other hand, Muhammad can't tell the difference between a revelation from God and a revelation from Satan. He gets tricked into delivering false revelations and thereby meeting the requirements uh, of a false prophet in Deuteronomy 18. Very different situations. Muhammad committed shirk. Jesus didn't. Muhammad promoted polytheism. Jesus didn't. So these are big differences. We can't simply... uh, We can't simply act like we're being inconsistent here by pointing out that prophets shouldn't be promoting polytheism and committing shirk. So we have no good reason to reject the satanic verses, and Muslims have no way of trying to deflect this issue back on us. But we've seen several good reasons to accept the fact that the early Muslim reports are accurate. If we apply, this, if we apply the standards of the historical method, we have no choice but to accept the reports. If we examine the reports based on the standards of the Syro-Maghazi scholars, we have no choice but to accept the reports. 
And even if we apply the strict standards of the Hadith scholars, we still have no choice but to accept the reports. Both because we have Isnads going back to Ibn Abbas and because we have multiple Sahih Mursal reports. It should be clear then that the only reasonable interpretation of the evidence is that Muhammad really did claim that he had delivered revelations from Satan, just as our earliest Muslim records report. Now, since we've already concluded that anyone who delivers a false revelation or promotes polytheism is a false prophet, and since we've seen that Muhammad did both, we have no choice but to accept the conclusion of the argument, namely that Muhammad was a false prophet. So, how can Muslims reject this conclusion? They could, of course, claim that Deuteronomy 18.20 is a false teaching not actually revealed by God. But if they take this route, it would be, absurd, it would be absurd of them to turn around and declare that Deuteronomy 18, 18-19 is an inspired prophecy. So, Muslims will have to drop their favorite prophecy about Muhammad and say that this was a false teaching as well. So Muslims who want to take this approach have to abandon uh, Deuteronomy 18 as a prediction about Muhammad. The problem with this approach is that the prophecy of, uh, of a coming prophet like Moses is one of the last remaining verses that Muslims uh, can appeal to in spite of the evidence. This is the last thing they have to uh, cling to their hopes that one day they'll find a prophecy about Muhammad or that there are prophecies about Muhammad in the Bible. But if the Bible contains no clear prophecies about Muhammad, then Muhammad was a false prophet since he claimed in the Quran that the Jewish and Christian scriptures contain prophecies of his coming. This means that Muslims are caught between the horns of a dilemma. If they cling to Deuteronomy 18, then Muhammad was a false prophet. If they abandon it, then it doesn't seem they have anything to point to as a prophecy about Muhammad, in which case Muhammad was a false prophet because he said something would be there and it isn't. But even then, Muslims who give up their most prized prophecies still wouldn't be out of the water. Because even if they abandon Deuteronomy 18 and declare it to be utterly corrupted, this still wouldn't refute the claims that a man who speaks in the name of other gods or delivers a false revelation is a false prophet, since, as I've already, as I've already pointed out, these seem intuitively obvious. Muslims who want to reject it would therefore have to say, yes, we believe that it's okay for a prophet to occasionally deliver revelations from the devil, and we believe that it's okay for a prophet here and there to commit shirk. Uh, if they're willing to argue that, I'd love to see it. And let's not forget that Muhammad did put his hand on a copy of the Torah and swore that it was the word of God. So Muslims will also have to say that Muhammad, their prophet, was wrong for putting his hand on that book and swearing that it's the word of God. And he should have never done it and that he didn't know what he was talking about. It seems then that Muslims who want to reject the conclusion of these arguments have to reject the satanic verses. It's just too much to reject Deuteronomy 18.20. But this means that they have to reject the overwhelming historical evidence for Muhammad's temporary support of paganism. Muslims who want to take this approach, denying history, have to do eight things. First, they must provide some reasonable explanation of the story's origin. So they'll have to say that Christians or Jews invented this somehow. Second, they must explain why Muslims, who had every reason to reject such a story, passed it on as if it were true instead of exposing it as a fabrication. Third, they have to show that Ibn Ishaq, Waqidi, Ibn Sa'd, Al-Tabari, Ibn Abi Hatim, Ibn Al-Mundir, Ibn Mardalia, Musa Ibn Uqba, and Abu Mashar were sloppy historians, so amazingly sloppy that they included false stories about Muhammad that called his prophethood into question. Fourth, they have to explain why so many of their first century scholars reported the satanic verses. Fifth, they have to account for the various chains of authority to which the early Muslim biographers appealed in their efforts to demonstrate the, uh, the story's authenticity. Sixth, they have to explain why al-Bukhari, Islam's most trusted authority, confirms certain details of the story that only make sense if Muhammad really did deliver the satanic verses. According to Sahih al-Bukhari, number 4862, the prophet performed a prostration when he finished reciting Surat al-Najm, 
And all the Muslims and all the polytheists, pagans, idolaters, and disbelievers in the oneness of Allah and in his messenger Muhammad and the jinn and human beings prostrated along with him. Everyone bowed down in honor of Surah 53. Now, although Bukhari understandably omits the embarrassing reason for the prostration of the pagans, why did the pagans bow down? Well, according to the Satanic Verses reports, they bowed down because Muhammad had praised their gods. So even though Bukhari omits these details, he admits that all the people bowed down in honor of Surah 53. But why would people bow down in honor of a story which, as it stands now, condemns their gods. It makes no sense. So the only, the only version that fits what we know is the story that occurs in Islam's earliest sources, namely that Muhammad delivered revelations from Satan. Seventh, Muslims must account for Surah 2252, which declares that all of God's prophets receive revelations from Satan, a verse so preposterous that it could have only been offered to the Muslim community as an absurd explanation for something like the satanic verses. And according to the Muslim sources, this is when that verse was revealed. When Muhammad uh, was distraught about having uh, promoted polytheism, he got a revelation from God saying, don't worry about it, all prophets fall for this from time to time. Well, not according to the Bible, and certainly not according to Deuteronomy 18. Now, there's one more thing that Muslims will have to do. They have to show non-Muslims why we should reject all of the available evidence and believe that Muhammad was spiritually, spiritually reliable when, as all informed Muslims will admit, Muhammad was the victim of black magic and at one point was convinced that he was demon-possessed. Put differently, if the prophet of Islam could mistakenly believe that he was demon-possessed and that he was susceptible to spiritual attacks, why should we believe that he, could, that he couldn't fall prey to revelations from Satan? Now, while I have witnessed Muslim attempts to explain away the historical evidence for the satanic verses, I've never seen anything remotely resembling a convincing refutation of the evidence. For instance, in my debate on the prophethood of Muhammad with uh, Ali Ate at the University of California at Davis, my opponent, my Muslim opponent, tried to respond to al-Bukhari's confirmation of the satanic verses by saying that what happened was this. The beauty of the Quran finally overwhelmed all the pagans and all of them, with one accord, bowed down at the power and beauty of Surah 53. Now, this is bordering on delusional. We know the reaction that the pagans had to the Quran. They simply weren't impressed. They believed that it could easily, easily be imitated. And so this response simply makes no sense, and yet this is the standard response that Muslims give when the information is presented to them. They try to say that the reason the pagans bowed down was because of the power of the Quran. We simply know historically that this is not what happened. So the only conceivable reason the pagans would bow down in honor of Surah 53 is that the Surah originally supported paganism, and this is exactly what our earliest Muslim sources report. To conclude, I would like to emphasize uh, again that both the versions of this argument have been based on the writings and claims of Muslims. Early Muslim historians, in an astounding display of honesty and integrity, admitted that their prophet had delivered the satanic verses to his followers. In acknowledging this, they provided all the evidence we need for the claim that Muhammad promoted polytheism and delivered a false revelation. Modern Muslims, in an effort to defend Muhammad's claim to biblical support for his ministry, have granted that a passage in Deuteronomy 18 is inspired by God. Muslim, uh, Muhammad also put his hand on a copy of the Torah and swore that it was the word of God. In doing these things, Muhammad and his followers have given all of the evidence we need for the claim that anyone who promotes polytheism or delivers a false revelation is a false prophet. Since both of these arguments are logically valid, and since they're composed of true premises, we have two proofs based entirely on the claims of Muslims that Muhammad was a false prophet. Now, I'll just point out here that if we reject the satanic verses, we have to say several things. We have to say that the historical method, the method that historians use to investigate events, means nothing to us. 
We have to say that 37 historical reports of an event are meaningless. We have to say that the first century Muslim scholars were all liars or they were simply completely irresponsible. If we say either one of those things, how can we believe anything that comes out of the first century of Islam? We also have to say that people like Ibn Taymiyyah didn't know what they were doing. They had no clue how to examine historical reports. We have to say, in effect, that we don't care what the evidence tells us. We're just going to believe whatever makes us feel good. I, for one, cannot say that. I'm sure you can't either. So for those of us who are interested in the evidence and for those of us who aren't willing to condemn all of Islam's earliest historians, we can draw three conclusions. First, Muhammad wasn't sinless. Surah 4, 116 tells us that shirk is the worst possible sin. Associating partners with Allah is the worst thing anyone could ever do. But what did Muhammad do? According to Muslim sources, he associated three goddesses with Allah. Muhammad committed shirk according to his earliest followers. And not only did he commit the worst possible sin, he also encouraged others to commit the worst possible sin. How can God's greatest prophet be a man who delivers revelations that lead people astray? Second, Muhammad couldn't tell the difference between a revelation from God and a revelation from Satan. This is interesting because, again, Muhammad's first impression of his revelations was that they were demonic in origin. He had to be talked out of this view by his wife and her cousin. So we know from multiple events in Muhammad's life that he just couldn't tell whether it was an angel or a demon talking to him. So how can we trust the only prophet in history who couldn't tell where his revelations were coming from? Third, Muslims claim that they respect Moses. We need to recognize that if Muhammad had delivered the satanic verses in the time of Moses, Moses would have ordered the people to pick up stones and stone him to death as a false prophet. Fortunately for Muhammad, he recited the satanic verses among pagans who praised him for reciting the satanic verses. But I will not praise him. And no one who loves God and hates shirk can accept this man as a prophet of the Almighty. Those who love truth will have to look somewhere other than Islam for the true religion. Now, since these arguments are sound, any honest seeker will have to admit that Muhammad was a false prophet. It should be an interesting exercise, then, to present these arguments to Muslims. If a Muslim examines the arguments carefully, inspecting the premises and weighing the evidence, and then rejects the conclusion without refuting the argument, we can only assume that such a person is less interested in truth and more interested in the comfort provided by blindly accepting the faith he was raised in. Although my experience leads me to believe that most Muslims are of this type, my experience has also shown me that there are Muslims in the world who are actively dedicated to learning the truth about God. The first truth such Muslims must learn is that their prophet Muhammad was no prophet at all. The second is that their prophet Jesus is much more than a prophet. Now, we've spent most of this lecture covering the argument from demonic influence. However, I'd like to briefly mention... Another argument based on something I said earlier in this lecture and based on something we saw in our lecture on the moral argument, I mean the, the argument for moral excellence. Muhammad received revelations when it was awfully convenient to receive these revelations. As we've seen, Muhammad wanted more wives than other people were allowed to have. And he received a revelation saying, Muhammad, you and you alone can have more wives than other people. Muhammad lusted after his own adopted son's wife. And he received a revelation saying, it's okay for you to marry her. Muhammad got a revelation saying that it was okay for him to marry a six-year-old girl, later to have sex with her when she was nine. When Muhammad wanted to divorce his wife, Sauda, because she had gotten old and unattractive and fat, he received a revelation saying that that's okay and that it was okay for him to reconcile. When Muhammad's wives persuaded him that he shouldn't be having sex with one of his slave girls when he already had between nine and 11 wives, 
he received another revelation telling him, it's okay, it's okay, don't listen to your wives. You can have sex with that girl if you want. There are many other examples like this in the Muslim sources. And it's important to recognize that even Aisha, Muhammad's favorite wife after Khadija, even Aisha noticed that he seemed to get revelations that satisfied his desires. In Sahih al-Bukhari, number 4788, Muhammad received one of these morally convenient revelations, and Aisha says to him, I feel that your Lord hastens in fulfilling your wishes and desires. Indeed. Now, I don't think this gives us a clear proof against the prophet of Muhammad, and Muslim could always say, well, I believe that God just liked to give Muhammad whatever he wanted, no matter how morally inconsistent it was uh, making him. Uh, but I think this does raise some serious doubts about the source of Muhammad's revelations. When a prophet constantly gets revelations that satisfy his desires, we have to wonder whether those, whether those revelations are coming from God. I wanted to bring this up here uh, to point out that we don't have to posit just one source for Muhammad's revelations. Muhammad was clearly susceptible to the attacks of spirits. His first impression of his revelations was that he was demon-possessed. And that's not an illogical conclusion based on what he experienced. If something while you're in, comes up to you in a cave and chokes you and frightens you and makes you horribly depressed and suicidal, you should wonder if it's really from God. Muhammad did and was talked out of this view. But his immediate reaction to this was that it was something evil, something very negative. And he had to be talked out of this view by people who weren't there and who had no clue what he experienced. We've also seen that Muhammad was the victim of black magic, and we can't forget the infamous satanic verses. All of this, all of this supports the conclusion that there was a very dark source for some of Muhammad's revelations and actions. But this doesn't mean that all of his revelations were demonic. If we see Muhammad having revelation after revelation that's meant to satisfy his desires, it seems the most reasonable conclusion here is that another source of his revelations was uh, his own mind. So in this lecture, we've seen two arguments against the prophethood of Muhammad, arguments that point to a source of revelation apart from God. Some of Muhammad's teachings were clearly influenced by dark forces. Others were clearly influenced by his desires. And since Muhammad claimed that all of these revelations were from God, it's clear that we're dealing with a false prophet.